This is Our House by Art, Humanity, and Action, a podcast where activists tell stories about the first time they realized they had to get involved and what happened next. I'm your host, Nicole Ferraro. And then I said, okay, I got to get to work. I couldn't sit back anymore. This was me really standing up and saying enough. We decided that we really needed to have an organized response. I knew I had to be involved. I wanted to help. Our stories are actually the biggest things that we had to make a difference. When I was first here on Friday, I wasn't an organizer. I hope you guys recognize that. I came here just like you, and I heard that this was going on, and I felt a responsibility to show up. I see how social change works, and it doesn't just work by me talking at you. It really works on the ground by you talking to me and us engaging and having a conversation. You're listening to Justin Moffitt. Justin is a young lawyer and an activist living on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. In the clip you just heard, Justin was speaking at a nightly Black Lives Matter rally and vigil that's been taking place at Carl Schurz Park in the Upper East Side neighborhood of Yorkville ever since the brutal police murder of George Floyd. Justin agreed to sit down with us to share more of his story, his own experience of race and racism, and how he ended up holding the bullhorn at a local protest. I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, and then we moved to Baltimore, and I stayed there until I was eight. Uh, Eventually, we moved to Nashville, and that was a culture shock and a half. Um, That was an interesting environment for a young gay Black kid to grow up in. Most of my friends were young white kids. This young boy who lived down the street, um, who I used to play with, came around to my house and he was asking uh, for me at the door and my dad answered it. And my dad is a larger built black man and he's darker than I am in terms of complexion. And the kid was confused. He asked where I was and I came around um, and he took me back to his house and he introduced me to his mom. And he said, mom, this is Justin. Um, He's brown, he's not black like his parents. And his mother was horrified. I mean, the look on her face. I was embarrassed, she was embarrassed. Even if he didn't understand what he did, it ties into a broader theme that I kept confronting. I contradicted in some ways the narrative that a lot of these kids had been socialized to believe. I don't think that they were prepared for the nuance that is the Black experience in America. In some ways, when I look back on this, I wish I had been more vocal and and stood up for myself more, but that's a little unfair to myself because I was so young. What eventually that turned into, which is a little bit darker, is a certain comfort level to speak about Black people in my presence in a way that they never would in front of someone who might have been darker or someone who might have come from a poorer neighborhood. Obviously, it's it's uncomfortable and it's concerning that 
they thought they could get away with it. And um, as I said, in some ways, I'm embarrassed by having let them get away with it. Um, But I think in some ways, it's also telling because they revealed to me what was really going through their minds. And I think in many ways, that still informs my advocacy and sense of social awareness. Um, Because maybe those people would not speak so frankly to me today, given who I am today. But I at least know where (laughs) what they were thinking when they were kids. I know what they were thinking when they were teenagers. I know what some of them were thinking even when they were adults. And so uh, in some ways, it's given me a heightened awareness of where we really are rather than where we would like to believe we are. I think it was a beginning of a longer journey. When I was a teenager, uh, I went off to camp in North Carolina and it was out in the Outer Banks. And there, it was a whole different level of Southern culture. Um, These were mostly native North Carolinians. And even as a camper, the kid in the bunk next to me kept a Confederate flag over his head. I remember a camper, this was when I was a counselor, a camper came up to me and he couldn't have been more than 11. uh, And he said, a fight's breaking out over there between someone and a colored boy. And I was leaning back in my chair and I just whipped up and I said, what? A colored boy? where are you from? And I was expecting him, stereotypically, I was expecting him to say he was from the Deep South. And he said he was from Stamford, Connecticut. I was shocked. And so I asked him, who do you know that uses that language? And so he said his grandparents. Um, And I was like, okay, so there we go. So I became more involved with civics and politics and what you might call civic engagement. Uh, and I also started to feel as though these, were, these issues were personal um, in high school, especially because I came out when I was 15. So by the time we got to high school, I was involved in this YMCA program called Youth in Government, which is basically like a Mali UN program for state government. So I learned about state politics, I learned about the state legislature, I learned about the state Supreme Court. And so that really got me thinking about more systemic policy issues. In the watershed moment was when the Tennessee legislature used a bill that was later dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill. It effectively prevented public school teachers from teaching in the classroom on subjects that dealt with homosexuality. Uh, a friend of mine organized a student protest. A, took place on the steps of the Capitol building, the state Capitol building in Nashville. And I remember hearing about it but being anxious 
about whether or not protesting was really my thing. Despite having been out for two years, I still felt uncomfortable and unsafe being loud and proud in the streets of Nashville. And so I was coming back uh, from having lunch down the street from my school and a bunch of seniors were piled in this old car and I asked them, where are you going? It was a car full of theater kids. <laughs> and I asked them, where are y'all going? And they said, we're going to the state capitol to protest. Do you want to come? And I was like, yes. Yeah, I feel like that's where I need to be. It was very impulsive all the way. I was outside of my comfort zone, but I just jumped in the car and I skipped my next class. I remember standing there awkwardly, not really knowing what I was supposed to do. I was loosely following the chants. And there came a point in which one of the organizers had this huge gay American flag. It basically had the stars and stripes, but the stripes were the gay flag and the stars were, were blue and white. And I said, let me hold it. And I took it and I waved it around. And I, if, if I ever had like a biopic, I feel like that would be like a, a moment um, because that was when I kind of stood in my own truth. I came more into my own. I became more vocal. I became more confident. And I basically said enough's enough. Like I, I, I need to do something. I learned about the killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd through the media, like everybody else. Again, like everybody else, I saw the media reports and the local news reports showing the protests out in Brooklyn. And I also saw when they grew more confrontational in Minneapolis. So I was very aware of the raw energy that was in the air. I was debating, to be honest with you, I was, I was debating whether or not my being in the streets was the best place for me. Because I also know that given my legal background and skills, I'm also capable of being helpful and useful to the movement in other spaces. And I was, I was nervous. I was nervous and I was scared. It's not every day that people wake up thinking, oh, today seems like a great day to be tear gassed. And then I saw videos of police cars basically going through crowds. It was a really tough call because I, I felt so strongly about it, but I was scared. So I went to a number of demonstrations in Manhattan. There was one by Stonewall. I was listening to the speeches. And what took me was the power of their voices, the power of their narratives. It reminded me of the power of storytelling. The importance and symbolism of being in the street and protesting because that too is important, but also sharing your story and explaining to folks why this matters is also very important. And it dawned on me that that's something that I can do. And so a friend of mine sent me 
the Instagram posting related to Carl Schur's park and the vigil. And it's only down the street from me. And so I showed up. There's a routine schedule. There are speakers. There's a community forum bit, which is basically like an open mic for community members to be able to speak. Then there's a march. And I went and I listened. And the spirit told me to stand up and say something. I really didn't know where I was going to take it or where it was going to take me. I just kind of grabbed the bullhorn and, and spoke what was on my mind. I invite you to use it as an opportunity of self-reflection on how you would like to continue your involvement through this movement so that it's sustainable, so that it's not cyclical, so that it's not just responsive to the news cycle that's constantly changing, so that it actually takes hold and becomes part of your DNA. So much so that you can spread that knowledge and energy to those around you and even to those who might disagree. Then afterwards, I marched with the protests and we marched up Park Avenue. We marched around the Upper East Side. And eventually, once we were approaching 81st Street on Park Avenue, there was a very strong police presence. They blocked off the street. And by this point, I'm in the very front of the march. And we basically walked into a police blockade and they jumped out with their nightsticks and billy clubs and helmets. And um, they started rounding people up. And in that moment, all of that fear and anxiety and confusion that I had before, just disappeared. It was, in some ways, a very serene moment. It was almost as though everything went silent and all you could see was the flashing blue and red lights and kind of like the commotion going around you. And I just knelt on the ground and put my hands up. And then a really nice young black female officer took my arms and she zip-tied my wrists together and I was held on the side of the street and eventually we were transported to holding cells in Harlem. It was a transitional moment for me from being a student, even though I've been out of law school for over a year now, to really applying that knowledge on the ground. When that jail cell clinked shut, and it, it was, it was, it was a lot to take in. Even through all of that, I came back the next day and um, I did it all over again in terms of giving a speech, in terms of talking to people in the crowd. And I kept it up. I kept doing it for seven days straight. I was basically giving kind of public lectures. There was just no fear anymore. which was great to be able to have this kind of impact on my local community, which is predominantly white and affluent. And I felt like this was where I needed to be because these are the people who wouldn't otherwise have this exposure and these experiences. We need to have sustained involvement. So, a pledge that I made and that I encouraged and invited 
other people to make was to find ways of staying involved in a more sustainable way than having to show up here every day. And I've been in talks with local clubs, like the local democratic club, about how can we continue to have these discussions. So this is all to say that the work still goes on. I remain hopeful. Justin continues to use his voice to advocate for an end to police brutality and structural racism in our society and laws. In a moment, we'll talk with him more about calls to defund the police, how to go about sustaining this movement, and ways that you can get involved. We are literally fighting over the soul of the United States of America. Justin, thank you so much for being on the show and telling us your beautiful story. Thank you for having me. So to start, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the movement we're in right now. There have been ongoing demonstrations across the country for well over a month. What are some of the goals of all of this action? So I think it's important to recognize that though the Black Lives Matter movement and broader movement that is going on right now around police reform, Though it's happening nationally, criminal justice reform is really a state and local issue. Um, And that in criminal justice reform, I'm also talking about police reform. And so, yes, there is action going on on Capitol Hill, but where the rubber really hits the road is at the state and local level. So being a New Yorker, I'm most familiar with what's going on here in New York City. And the big policy demands that have gone through successfully included the Eric Garner anti-choking bill, which prevents local law enforcement agencies throughout the state from using chokeholds as a policing tactic. The other one is 50A, which refers to a law that effectively protected police disciplinary records from public view. The public wouldn't have access to their past disciplinary records and misdeeds. Now, importantly, there are still a number of policies still left on the table uh, that are being discussed. Um, One is dubbed the Blue Wall Law, which deals with police filing false reports. Um, There's conversation around ending qualified immunity, which is basically a legal protection for police officers when acting in their official capacity. And so I think those are the two big issues besides defunding the police and refunding social services, uh, which is itself a massive topic and something that really requires a lot of unpacking. And I don't really know if uh, we've done the best job at, at really explaining the heart of the issue Luckily, there have been people out there who have created really informative and instructional and and illustrative videos. But I would say, besides defunding the police and refunding social services, the, the other issues would be qualified immunity 
and um, filing false report. So for someone listening to this right now who wants to get involved, but maybe hasn't found a way in yet, what do you suggest that they do first? Well, I think the first step is trying to find resources to figure out what are the issues in your state. I'm not able to speak to what are the criminal justice issues in California that are on the table. Um, But if I were from California and I didn't otherwise know, I probably would start by going to one of these vigils or demonstration. I would try to put myself, insert myself in an environment where I could learn. Um, Obviously, there's Google, but sometimes these resources aren't readily Googleable. For example, there's this website here in New York called blackopportunities.com, and that helpfully lists out a number of the policy demands of the New York Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, I only learned about it because I was on the ground at the vigil and a resident or an activist came up to me and she told me about it and she wasn't even of color. It just goes to show uh, you never know who's in a position to expose you to a new resource. So I think, I think you just have to put yourself in these spaces. Um, And then once you learn, you got to disseminate that information because obviously not everyone and their mother is going to show up to one of these events, but they very well might learn about it through the network effect of, well, if you go and then you put it out there into the ethos, into this, into the internet blogosphere, you can extend your, your sphere of, influence and exposure to other people who might not otherwise have access to these spaces. Okay, so last question then. Um, One of the things that you've spoken about is what happens when the momentum fades and people aren't in the streets as much. How do you hope that we'll continue to sustain this movement? Well, I would like for advocates like myself, or community organizers, or members of the concerned public to find other forums and venues to continue having these conversations and hosting discussions um, so that we can keep the movement going past the point in which we're no longer protesting in the streets. The flip side of that is I think it's important for members of the public to remain engaged and to keep an eye out for those opportunities to want to stay engaged, uh, to want to attend a panel discussion or a working group, um, to join a civic organization that's engaged on these issues, to follow the NYCLU, which is the city affiliate of the ACLU. So I'm hoping that through their engagement in these protests, they're becoming more aware of the various civic organizations that have been doing this work. And they realized, wait, there's a lot out there that I didn't already know, that I know now, but I also recognize I could have known some time ago. I wonder what else is there that I still don't know today that I should learn about so I don't repeat this. You know, so I don't feel as though I'm behind the curb on a really important issue. And so I hope that they get involved in those civic organizations, those advocacy organizations, or at least they follow them, whether it's on social media or they just check in on their websites every now and again, and they stay engaged. 
Justin, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you for being in the world. Uh, You're an amazing person, and I'm grateful to be your neighbor. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much to Justin Moffitt for taking the time to talk to us, and thank you all for listening. Before you move on to something else, we ask that you please take at least one action to get more involved. Whether you'd like to sign a petition, make a donation, get educated about structural racism, find a local protest, or look into the laws that need changing in your community, we've compiled a list of resources and easy actions that you can find in the show notes for this episode and on our website. Black Lives Matter, silence is violence, and it's everyone's responsibility to fight for the safety, health, and well-being of all Black people. This podcast comes from Art, Humanity, and Action, and it's produced and edited by Jeff Rose. Music is by Audioblocks. You can find more activist stories from the podcast at arthumanityaction.com. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for being in the world.